Chapter 16 Legend of a Mind Coop was in a bad mood. A man not usually given to the normal ups and downs most people felt was having a rotten day. His duties on the movie were minimal today. He simply had to transfer some optical tracks recorded from the set to mag full coat for the editor, who with Coop worked simultaneously as the crew shot since they were behind, which was causing Coop's workload to expand tremendously. That didn't bother him. He was no stranger to work. It was, in fact, all he knew. The term workaholic may not have been in vogue in 1946, but it was the best word to describe Coop. If workaholic genius engineer inventor was an actual job title, it would have fit the man to a T. But all of that was a heavy burden. And as a result, sleep did not come naturally to Coop. If anything, it was a distraction. Coop, grappling with another sleepless night, was plagued by the headaches that had been consuming him for the past year. They were debilitating, unbelievably wretched. And when they came on like a hurricane, he'd go into a death spiral for hours on end, a cold rag on his head, unable to think or move. They were what Winston Churchill referred to as his black dog, an affliction that followed you everywhere. Now that Coop's power headache was coming on fast, he wasn't making any progress towards getting him and his new friend, Evan West, back to their respective eras. Nothing was going to help or work. He was stuck in 1946, which he could manage, but he was very aware that Evan was also stuck here, and that could lead to potentially fatal consequences. Arthur Strickler had Evan kidnapped, and now that Evan had thwarted him, Strickler's goal was likely to have him killed. Evan could not stay in this time. He had to return to his own, or move on to another. Coop would not, could not, let anything happen to his friend. Coop knew too well what men like Strickler were capable of. He had seen it on his face when he first met the man. Coop drove home, thinking back on his upbringing. Poor in New York City. He was born in Tennessee. His parents moved to New York when he was two. Coop had no memories of Tennessee or living as a sharecropper's son. He remembered only 125th Street in Harlem, the cold water flat he grew up in, and the smell of those cramped rooms and the sounds of traffic, horns, and trash cans rattling. In New York, he grew into a very precocious and alien-like child who read by the time he was three, spoke French and Italian at four, and could quote Shakespeare at five. Coop's mother worked at the Brooklyn Woman's Hospital. His father did plumbing jobs around Harlem, sometimes all the way up to Upper Manhattan and Washington Heights. His brothers and sisters went to public school, and Coop went to the New York Public Library a place that did more for Coop than a full Ph.D. program at Harvard or Yale would have done for anyone else. His brain was like an enormous, thirsty sponge that sucked up every bit of knowledge, and unlike most, he retained it. Coop did go to Columbia University. 
but only to attend lectures given during the fall semester of 1890 by leading physics theorists and scientists. Coop could spot the frauds from a mile away and notice the distinct frown on the face of one man in particular, a heavyset man with a balding head and thick spectacles. Coop immediately knew this man was the smartest in the room, and Coop had boldly introduced himself to Thomas Comerford Martin, an adjunct professor of electrical engineering at Columbia and former president of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. Martin took an immediate liking to Coop, admiring his manners, polish, and mastery of language. He offered Coop a job as his assistant, and not knowing better, Coop happily accepted. During that magical winter semester of 1891, Coop helped Martin prepare his lecture materials and always double-checked his mathematics to make sure Martin's calculations were correct. Martin chaired the Engineering Council for Professional Development that defined engineering as that profession which utilizes the resources of the planet for the benefit of mankind. Martin and Coop came up with that phrase together. Both men soon found something to be especially excited about, the work of a Serbian immigrant, a former Edison employee, and an utterly brilliant man named Nikola Tesla. On May 10, 1891, Martin brought together an enormous gathering at a Columbia lecture hall. Not only were there members of the academic world, with representatives from Columbia, Cornell, MIT, Yale, and Johns Hopkins, but also the giants of industry from Westinghouse, Edison General Electric, along with delegates from various trade journals who spread the news of this great discovery and revelation to science and art unto all time. Coop sat in the front row as Nikola Tesla, who barely spoke before he began his lecture, walked out on stage, and the entire room was filled with electricity. Tesla presented his discoveries in the realm of high-frequency engineering and demonstrated the principle of coupled tuning. He introduced and demonstrated a technology that would raise the average power developed by RF sources five orders of magnitude. Coop was in awe. This was a man who was taking existing technology and approaching science like an artist. He didn't take the rules seriously. Most scientists, Coop noticed, were more interested in following the rules than breaking them, and was doing more for innovation than anyone else, even Edison. During the lecture, Tesla held up long poles of glass, and they lit up with a soft light with no wires attached. He called this cold light, wireless electricity that would activate when near an active source of power. Coop found this astonishing, as did everyone else in the room. In his own unknowing, clumsy way, that night, Nikola Tesla declared war on his former employer, Thomas Edison. Edison, a practical man who could see exactly where to make money with any invention, was also attuned to seeing threats, and Tesla's cold light certainly fit the definition. Anything without a wire could not be regulated, and power was the last thing Edison wanted to give away for free. 
Edison was planning a war with Tesla. Winning was all he knew. Coop reflected on the fact that Edison's war with Tesla was what drove them to Colorado Springs, which in turn led to Coop's strange time travel adventure to 1946. Coop shook his head, as if to clear away the memories, then turned left from Franklin to Hillhurst and made a right on Clarissa. He was still brooding, headache going from mild throbbing to a full-on sledgehammer against his forehead. He held his eyes closed once he parked the Dodge, afraid he might lose consciousness. Coop was tired from being up all night. The adventure that led to him killing two men, which he had no remorse over, and the long drive to and from San Pedro. He had saved his friend's life, though he barely knew Evan. For all intents and purposes, the young man had become his traveling companion through 1946. Coop, for whatever reason, felt a deep kinship with Evan. He'd never really had any friends. Tesla came the closest thing to having that distinction. But the man had been so solipsistic and closed off. Coop doubted he ever even confided to his own mother. Tesla had been a vast wasteland when it came to human relationships and only sought out working partners who were subservient to him, Coop being perfect in that role. So why do I want to go back to 1899 and to Nikola Tesla so badly? Coop, who had always longed for a girlfriend, but never could see the practicality of having one, had nonetheless felt the emptiness of his life nagging at him. He had his science, his inventions, his deft maneuvering around obstacles, but all that was growing old. He wanted a friend, someone he could learn from, and who simply liked Coop for who he was. Evan was exciting, a man from the future, the real future, where all the scientific excitement was bound to be. Since Evan's arrival, they never had time for the talk. Coop wanted to know everything, but as a man with manners and scientific imagination, he understood all came in due time. He would ask Evan all those burning questions eventually, but right now, his focus was to save him. The dark thought crossed his mind to develop another electric plasma gun that would disintegrate Arthur J. Strickler and his goon Jack to nothing. It would be easy to develop a more focused version of the device that stunned the two killers and led to their deaths, or at least severe injuries. But he didn't want to go there. Malicious thoughts were easy to conjure, but hard to dismiss. He had a lot of anger inside him that was unresolved though he normally shrugged it off with bursts of creative energy that kept him up all night developing something for work, such as a microphone that was extremely directional, or an advancement of the cardioid microphone that picked up sound from a heart-shaped recording zone. Right now, he had to fight off his headache and get back to work. If he couldn't go back to 1899, well, to hell with it. Coop could live with firing forward to the 21st century if that was a possibility. With any luck, and considering what Evan had said, maybe a man with his level of melanin would not be so damned afraid to go out at night. Although, he had found in 1946, there were just as many black predators roaming the streets at night as white. 
Coop entered his house, still careful to lock the door, and stuffed the keys back in his pocket. In the kitchen, he took a cold washcloth, soaked it in the sink, filled it with ice cubes, an amazing invention from 1946 he would never take for granted, and stretched it across his forehead. He reclined on a sofa, letting the coldness sink into his forehead, hoping it would permeate his brain and cool it off, bringing him back to reality, or at least a semblance thereof. Coop's migraines came on so strong that for days afterward, his vision and sense of taste and smell would be affected. His sense of smell became acute, and blue lights danced in the corner of his vision that under any other circumstances he would have found beautiful. When he had succumbed to these headaches as a child, his mother would say he had too much going on in his head, and his pipes overheated. She was smarter than she knew, because that was exactly what was going on. He had an enormous problem to solve. It had temporarily blown out the circuits of his brain. Coop felt himself sinking into the quagmire of his sofa. Such a soft bit of furniture he brought new from Wirtz Brothers. He loved its luxury. Coop squished a pillow under his hat and wondered how they could go back to their respective times, or at the very least, how he could get his friend Evan forward to his own time. Coop, who was current on all things scientific, also knew the Einstein theory that compared time to a winding river, with humanity in a boat, drifting along between two high banks. One can't see the future beyond the next curve, or the past behind them, but it's all still there, as real as the moment around them. Coop knew this to be true, and he also knew something else. Whatever Nicola and Evan had chanced upon was breaking every rule of science and physics. Yes, the winding river was the correct analogy, but those banks were high for a reason. Although his sort of friend Nikola Tesla had not been a believer in the Almighty, Coop believed very strongly indeed in his existence. Perhaps it was his Baptist upbringing, or maybe even his righteous feeling of right and wrong. But Coop knew there was something out there, something so massive and beyond human understanding that to accept this thing, God, for lack of a better term, was better than to dismiss his existence. Without God, there would be no existence at all. The high banks that forbid men and women from seeing into time past or time forward, in Coop's mind, were guardrails constructed by God for a very good reason. And because of two random but almost connected encounters with electrical power so immense, it had diminished those banks. Both Coop and Evan had crossed into the same time. But why here? Coop mused. Why Los Angeles in the 1940s? And why a man from 1899 and a man from 2021 both ending up in the same decade, same place? What was the calculus behind that? Was it by design? Evan went back 75 years in time. Coop had gone forward 45. Coop had done the math, looked for any variables in the equation. Their backward and forward travel were both divisible by five and were 30 years apart in total. 
but those figures provided no answer. Coop suddenly recalled the quote Evan had mentioned earlier from someone named Spock. Once you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Coop could see the impeccable logic of the statement, but it was hard for him to reconcile the idea that he and Evan were here for a reason. If there was a reason behind all of this, he simply couldn't fathom what it might be. Coop's headache was crushing him now, a heavy dinosaur stomping on his head, smashing him into eternity on that nice, soft, velvet pillow. Before he drifted into a dreamless sleep, Coop considered the pillow he had his head resting on, and how in the 1700s, a pillow like this would have only belonged to a king or queen. Time is like a winding river, with humanity in a boat drifting along between two high banks. Coop's last thought was that he'd have to be the one to discover how to scale those high banks, get to the top, climb over, and get into the next bend of the river, all while holding tight to the boat. Indeed, Coop needed a boat of some kind. Without one to hold him on that journey, he'd drown and pull Evan down with him. Coop would not allow that. Ever. 